Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak with Patrick Deloy, Managing Director at Merkle, an award-winning e-commerce solutions provider which supports medium to large B2C and B2B companies with the planning, development, localization, and long-term support of multi-country e-commerce website deployments in the APAC region. This episode is part one of two with Patrick, in which we cover a wide range of topics, including the current state of omni-channel retail in APAC, including trends and tactics the West could emulate. We also look at examples of brands who are doing omni-channel retail well in Asia, and a very intelligent yet nuanced conversation deep diving into why Patrick says consumers no longer go shopping, but are What's rather for me most impressive shopping. is Enjoy. really the tight integration of digital commerce channels with social media and, and mobile, right? WeChat, of course, is the most classic example, right? But it's not unique to China. I mean, most consumers in markets, right, like in Southeast Asia, for example, they started the e-commerce journey not on a PC, not on a laptop, but only on mobile phones, right? Many of them, they don't have a PC or laptop. So the format and the user experience of, you know, some of the most successful shopping channels, online shopping channels has always been mobile, right? And mobile experience first. This was also one of the key ingredients of uh, success for Shopee, for example, right? They actually came almost out of nowhere and overtook Lazada, which was already decently big in a, in a fairly short time because Lazada started out as shopping channel primarily focused on, you know, laptop or PC. They didn't embrace mobile uh, right away. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Todd. Okay, as we usually do, we want to set up everybody, at least geographically, to understand where you are. So where are you physically located and recording from today? Um, currently in Hong Kong. Well, I've lived here now for uh, the better part of the last uh, 15 years. I moved here uh, about 15 years ago and have been here ever since with some stints in between, multi-year stints in Guangzhou, Zhuhai and Shanghai in between. Yeah, obviously now current COVID regulations make it just a little bit more difficult for me to travel. Um, I used to be based here really as a kind of essential place to fly out to everywhere across APAC. Mm -hmm. But it's still a great place to, to live in, that's for sure. Yeah, it's very central. It's a great jumping off point. For those who aren't sure where Guangzhou is, Guangzhou is at the top end of that the Guangdong region, Shenzhen maybe at the bottom, Guangzhou at the top, and Guangzhou right across the water from Hong Kong. And then Guangzhou would be what I guess like northwest up from there, but still pretty south China. So give us a quick introduction into you and yourself for the work that you're doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, well, as mentioned, I've lived in Hong Kong and China for the last uh, 15 years, but my role actually has always been regional. Together with a, a co-founder, I actually started a business about 12 years ago with a focus specifically on e-commerce. And we started out actually in Shanghai and uh, Hong Kong at the same time. 12 years ago, there was at a time when Tmall, for example, had just launched a year before. And I still remember very vividly when we were starting out. Out. There, there was a lot of, there were a lot of advertisements. Tmall, the new thing, right? It's uh, because before there was Taobao, but even at that time, it was very well known that on Taobao there were a lot of fake products, right? And and Tmall was supposed to be this really brand-driven platform in China. And yeah, just right from the moment when we started 12 years ago, we were riding really the exciting, the wild wave of e-commerce growth in China and uh, the APEC region. And, and that was really a wild ride. We've grown so quickly from basically, we started out literally with uh, just me and my co-founder. We've hired one, two, three people, etc. And uh, before we knew it, we were already 200 people across uh, China, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Vietnam. And yeah, and then uh, there was another pivotal moment, which brought me into the, the position that I am I'm in now. Uh, when we were actually acquired by the Densu Group about five years ago. Densu, if you don't know, is a company with a very long history. In fact, about 120 years ago, it started in, in Japan. Very long history mm -hmm. as an ad agency. But since then, they've become one of the big ones on par with the usual suspects, WPP. Omicron publicists, etc. And as such, obviously, it's also critically important to have a very strong commerce and omni-channel practice. And this is what we brought in into Densu and in uh, APAC. And uh, yeah, and fast forward to where I'm now, I'm overseeing basically all commerce and loyalty projects of Densu and Merkel in... Uh, yeah, as you and I know, and longtime listeners of the show will know that I, I also spent eight years uh, in China. I was there 2008 to 2016. And it was a super fascinating time having, what do we say now, 800 million, a billion people getting on the internet within five years because of smartphones. And then once you put those smartphones in people's hands after they've checked their socials, then they go to shopping. And so you've been right at, at the heart of some of the greatest innovation and seeing the greatest growth in e-commerce from the beginning in the best place. So this is going to be pretty fantastic. I'm pretty excited about this, but I want to go back because I know that you went to university and business school in the EU and you can call out your alma mater if you want to you know, name drop the school and say hi. But then tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Hong Kong from there, because everybody who's an expat to, to APAC has usually a pretty fun story on how they ended up there, usually unintentionally or sometimes ironically, uh, and then they just never left. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Hong Kong. And then what were those early days of how you got into e-commerce and became the expert on D2C that you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, first of all, since you were asking my alma mater, so <laughs> we're in uh, Copenhagen and Bonn. And obviously, universities tend to be already uh, very international to start with. But for me, the fascination, especially 15 years ago, was, and I think uh, this has changed a little bit because you look at the startup ecosystem now in, in Europe, it has actually become quite dynamic. You see the startup centers in London and Berlin and Paris, etc. So it has changed. It has changed, definitely 
differently compared to 15 years ago. But when I came to Hong Kong first 15 years ago, it was fascinating. It was uh, nothing short of uh, exciting for me, really. And at that time, actually, as many others, many others, I only planned to stay for a short time, but I ended up staying because it, it just felt it was really the epicenter of a lot of things that were happening, especially things digital and innovative. And you've uh, just mentioned as well during that time, obviously, in, in China uh, in particular, right? A lot of new consumers came online, uh, used uh, digital channels, obviously, all the ecosystem that we know nowadays with uh, WeChat and everything just uh, came to prominence over the last few years. And I guess say I've not regretted it uh, for a day to really have stayed um, here with everything that happened has happened in this region. And it has also made it much easier for us to grow our team, really. When I mentioned before, we went from just a couple of people to 200 people in, in a very short time frame. This is more difficult to do in, in, in Europe or North America, where maybe the ecosystem was a little bit more set. And again, back at that time, right, where growth was uh, very dynamic uh, all across the region, but especially in China and greater China, it was just uh, the right uh, place to be. And and in that transition in, into commerce, look, now the... Um, the share of online purchases nowadays in China, it has crossed uh, 50% two to three mm. years ago. So more than 50% of all purchases are done online versus uh, traditional offline channels. That is just uh, in <laughs> incredible, right? Especially for this short time span and, and just the number of people that are shopping uh, online. It's really un unmatched anywhere else in the world. So for me, it was always the right uh, place to be. And the thing I want to point out is really what's fascinating, continuous to keep me curious curious as well is how the whole e-commerce landscape and consumer expectations are evolving across all the markets in APAC, in China, knowing that all country, all markets, all countries, all markets, all regions are on different tracks, right? They, they started out at a different uh, stage and, and they're on different tracks as well. They have different ecosystems, but this is what makes it really interesting for me, having this regional responsibility and, and being able to have an inside look into what's happening in China versus Korea versus Southeast Asian markets, Australia, etc. Absolutely. Okay, let's start. And this is going to be broad. And we're going to go to 30,000 feet and then we'll zoom in from there. So why don't we start with talking about the current state, according to yourself, what is the omni-channel retail ecosystem and environment today? in that APAC region? It is definitely a very broad question. I think what is most interesting for me, having been um, in the region for a long time, is really the development of omnichannel retail over the past few years in the APAC region. So now, again, if you look at China, we all know with which speed and ingenuity, really, the omnichannel retail sector has developed, fired up by super apps, widespread adoption of uh, online payment options, you know, the popularity of logistics, ex exactly, which is its own challenge for a country that big, right? The popularity of innovative concepts like live streaming, influencer commerce, and of course, also very much so a, a, regular frame, a regulatory framework that at least until recently, like, you know, allowed and supported this flourishing ecosystem. So for the longest time, China was always boasting the highest uh, growth numbers for omnichannel retail. But, but now what's interesting as well is because there's, uh, of course, we're reaching also low 
little bit of a, a, a point of saturation. I think most recently as well, you've seen the news, right? Alibaba, Tencent, uh, yeah, for the first time, they actually had to take a step back. They did not grow as, as much as they did a couple of years. But now we see the highest growth numbers actually um, in markets that are playing, still playing catch up. So take, uh, for example, Indonesia and the Philippines. The e-commerce market actually in, in, in uh, both markets uh, this year is growing by 25%, 25% year on year. In fact, the Philippines right now is by most measures the highest e-commerce growth of any country in the world anywhere, followed by Indonesia and, and Vietnam is also in the top five. Similar to what we've seen actually previously in China, what has held uh, these companies back when it came to omnichannel retail was also very much an insufficient logistics network, right? If you think of uh, the Philippines or Indonesia, a lot of islands as well. How do you get the products to to all the consumers? Unavailability also of mobile payment options and just a lack of D2C channels as well. Not a lot of brands were actually interested to sell direct, but, but that has changed a lot now. For the payment infrastructure, there was always a little bit of a workaround, of a workaround. I think... Um, what has happened a lot over the last uh, few years, especially where not all consumers had bank accounts, or online payment options or credit cards. There was a lot of cash on delivery, for example, which also works decently, even though it's not mm -hmm. as uh, efficient. You had these big players that came up, right? Like in Indonesia, it's all go to uh, Tokopedia. The marketplace is huge in, in the market. In the Philippines, it's driven by Shopee and Lazada. And really on the back of that, you know, more and more D2C brands extending their offering as well in, in the and, uh, and they're really driving the change as well because with them on their coattails, basically the logistics networks uh, get stronger, the delivery uh, options get easier and it becomes cheaper, which is, again, it's a factor of price as well. It is prohibitively expensive to, to ship products to consumer in any of these countries and, you know, omni-channel commerce with the online component just uh, doesn't work well. Yeah. What about some of the other countries? I know and I wanted to ask you, OK, a bit of a country geography kind of layout of who's doing what. And of course, you went right into Philippines and Indonesia. Any other mm. countries, put it this way, any other countries that are worth mentioning for whatever reason? Yeah, I think so. If we maybe broadly separate uh, countries into a few buckets, I think uh, the first bucket is legacy markets, if you want, just in the sense that 10 years ago, they already had quite a few uh, D2C online uh, commerce channels. And that definitely includes Australia and New Zealand. Obviously, when we talk about APAC, it also includes uh, Japan to a certain degree and Korea, which has always been very digitally innovative. But everything in between, and then of course, China with its rise, there was just uh, almost has been most amazing over the last uh, 10 years. But all the other markets, really, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, we're just minnows as well, not just because they're smaller markets, but also because if you look at Hong Kong, for example, and I obviously know that ecosystem very well, having been here, having been here for the last 15 years, but e-commerce was always uh, considered to be a non-starter in Hong Kong just because the retail network is so dense. So mm -hmm. you could ask, why would anyone order online? I can just uh, go out five minutes. I'm at a store and I can pick up the product. But this has changed during COVID. COVID was really the change maker here where a lot of brands uh, saw we have to step up, you know, options uh, as well. We have to step up innovation, right? Digital transformation and provide more options for consumers as well. Maybe to not have to leave the house and uh, not get exposed outside. So, yeah, I think broadly speaking, these are probably the different countries and we saw them starting out from. Yeah. Yeah. I, the habits, it was COVID just 
propagated this consumer habitual change. It forced this change to a degree. And then, of course, re- then the habit and the habitual nature starts to take over. I think we're very habitual creatures. And once we get used to it, and it's, it's, it's like any UI UX designer will tell you that you get better traction when something is intuitive, but that just takes practice and, and habit building and muscle memory. And then once you develop that, then you, it gets easier. You, and then I think just the trust on the product, the trust on delivery, Trust and returns, mm-hmm. trust and complaints, our post-purchase yeah. service. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, just in the brands and the payments and all this. And it really sped up. Go ahead. Yeah. And I think that's a great call out to Todd as well on the uh, importance of trust, right? Because I think a general assessment as well that we can make uh, if we compare Asian, especially online commerce markets to, let's say, America or Europe, is uh, that there's a lack of trust generally, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of Mm -hmm. quality of products, authenticity of products, reliability of delivery and everything. And this is where, especially the big marketplaces, which were always at the forefront of bringing commerce, uh, online commerce, shopping habits in into these countries, whether it's China or Indonesia or others, played a big role because uh, to, to stay in their good grace as a brand, as a merchant, you have to have uh, good uh, reviews, right? Uh, positive reviews. There's a lot more uh, trust is created if a user knows, okay, there are a lot of reviews because typically you can also only review. That's also different to Amazon, for example, on, on Timo, etc. You can only review after you've actually ordered the product, right? So mm-hmm. there's a certain level of verification as well, that you're a consumer. Um, and, and that really helped as well to grow that online, you know, commerce uh, ecosystem. Yeah. yeah. I remember back in my days in Shanghai, there was a joke said six months ago, I, I bought a book on how to avoid scams. Still hasn't arrived yet. Let me ask you some of the trends and tactics because you, you've seen it. All. I, I, again, these are the kind of questions because you're at the epicenter of innovation and growth. Like these are the cues. This is why we want to have this podcast this is why we should be paying attention to how everything works in that area of the world, because they're so far out in front. And it's not that you mm-hmm. could just duplicate and transplant exactly what's happening there. But I I think you should be really paying attention and taking cues if you're in this space. So what are some of the trends and tactics in this space that companies in the West can and maybe should be taking cues from, if not trying to emulate in the West? Yeah, there's just so much happening in in the region, right? I think uh, there are some concepts which I think a lot of brands or consumers in the West have also become familiar with because they're very popular in markets like China, commerce, right? Influence commerce, common knowledge, right? It's huge in China already, and I think everyone agrees, even though it's it's already pretty big in, in Western markets already, but there's still a lot of uh, growth potential, right? The way, uh, mm-hmm. you know, live stream mm-hmm. commerce is conducted right now in China yes. is still much more interactive, right? Uh, uh, much more from the ground up compared to how some of the big Kardashians are using live stream commerce right now in, in uh, the West. But I think just to call out a, a broader concept, I think what's for me most impressive is really the tight integration of digital commerce channels with social media and, and mobile. WeChat, of course, is the most classic example, but it, it's not unique to China. Most um, 
consumers in markets, right? Like in Southeast Asia, for example, they started the e-commerce journey, not on a PC, not on a laptop, but only on mobile phones, right? Many of them, they don't have a PC or laptop. So the format and the user experience of some of the most successful shopping channels, online shopping channels, has always been mobile, right? And mobile experience first. And in fact, this was also, uh, I think, one of the key ingredients of uh, success for Shopee, for example, right? They actually came almost out of nowhere and overtook Lazada, which was already decently big, in a fairly short time because Lazada started out as a shopping channel primarily focused on on laptop or a kind of a PC uh, mm. size, Web. and uh, they didn't embrace mobile uh, right away. And if you pair that then also with uh, who are the consumers in, in Asia, what's their profile? And again, broadly speaking, of course, notwithstanding more legacy markets like Japan or Australia, so most consumers, especially in Southeast Asia, they tend to be young, right? They are millennials, they're Gen Z, even younger. And this impacts as well how they use the internet. This impacts the expectations they have as well. They grew up with social media, right? So they grew up with the mobile always in their hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they have very diff- different expectations as well towards brands and what they get offered. Right? And one thing that we've also, we did actually a few surveys on this as well, a few studies in the last two to three years is how willing young consumers uh, are to give up some of their data in exchange for value they get from brands. And we saw a very clear indication that younger consumers are very aware that and very conscious, they only want to give up some data if they get real value. And then the omnichannel concept that is really, you know, the centering of all information, all channels, um, all, you know, interactions around the consumer consumer itself. Mm-hmm. And, and this is definitely something that we see in Asia. It's not necessarily unique to Asia, but I think given that the population tends to be, broadly speaking, younger here in the region compared to Europe or North America, it's a very significant uh, trend. Mm -hmm. How many international brands do you think are really doing omni-channel e-commerce in APAC? Does this apply particularly to consumers in the Asia-Pacific region? Yeah. To answer your first question first, I think some of the some of the larger sports brands, for example, the likes of Adidas, Nike, Asics, mm-hmm. Lululemon, Under Armour, right? They've made a very conscious effort to drive their DTC omni-channel retail ecosystem and strategy and invest in in that as well. It, mm-hmm. it, it requires, requires real investment. And that also includes some components like, and, and this is quite well known, right? Like for example, dedicated mobile applications that also boast other features like for Nike, they have this fitness tracker. Under Armour has uh, similar uh, things. And they've also invested in, in a lot of in-store technology that helps also to blur the lines a little bit between what is really online and what is uh, offline on the most basic level, for example, offering pickup and store on online orders, right? I click and collect or Bopis, which has become actually quite table stakes in other markets like uh, the US, right? But, so but, the retail uh, space well, is required yeah. for that? The retail space is absolutely required. Required, so it will not go away. It's just morphing into more of an experience space, right? Um, yes. I think this is definitely most uh, the most prominent feature of what's happening with uh, with retail spaces. Yeah, and again, it's all about the integration as well. Because here's another example, right? Something that we see that brands put a lot more focus on more recently is actually loyalty and customer retention programs. Uh, and to give you an example as well. 
specifically out of Hong Kong, for example. Hong Kong used to, and it still has a great retail landscape, but it was geared very much towards not so much the local consumers in many parts, especially for high-end products, but tourists, and especially tourists from mainland China. So now what happened with COVID, obviously borders closed, right? No, not a single tourist was coming in anymore. So suddenly all these brands, all these retailers, they had to reorientate themselves and really look at, okay, who can we sell to now? Oh, we have to sell actually to the local consumers. And the local consumers, they might frequent the shop multiple times, not just uh, one time, right? And suddenly there was a lot of focus on loyalty and customer retention programs. And again, combination as well from an omni-channel perspective with both the offline retail and online channels, right? Because if I sign up, for example, for a loyalty program, I want to be able to use it both in offline channels at the point of sales online. And nowadays, for example, there's there's not a single brand that can do without loyalty program in, in the market. So, yeah. Yeah. We caught something that you said or wrote online about something along the vein of consumers no longer go shopping. It's not that they don't, but rather they're always shopping. I, I think that was such a cool kind of uh, nuance uh, to that. Can you elaborate a bit on that? And, and does this apply particularly to consumers in the APAC region or everywhere? It does. I believe it does. So look, the, the core consideration is this. The way we look at it, online shopping should really become so integrated, so easy and natural that it fully embeds into any other activity that a consumer is doing, scrolling through a newsfeed on social media, watching videos on YouTube or communicating with uh, friends. So going shopping should become less of a dedicated thought, like I have to head out to buy something and more of a really hassle-free activity that is complete in a very short time. Let me give you just two scenarios, right? As a exemplary consumer journey. So in scenario one, which is a traditional offline uh, journey with online elements. As a consumer, I'm conscious I need a new pair of running shoes because I'm an avid runner. So unless I have a favorite brand already, I may first do some research online. I go to Google, I look at, you know, through top 10 lists, I maybe watch some videos, user reviews, I check pricing on various platforms, product availability, delivery times, etc. This can easily take me a couple of hours and there has to be a very conscious activity as well because at any point in time, I could say, okay, I have other things to do and that I'm just losing that train of thought. So mm-hmm. in scenario, scenario two, though, I'm assuming that maybe I've provided some signals that I'm interested in running. That could be because videos I watched or keywords on social media or active inquiries and run a relevant channel such. Now, to capture that sale at the point when really my interest is peaked, I'm really thinking about it right now. Brands need to make it as easy as possible, really, for consumers to find the right product and make an online purchase in no time. Whether that's through an embedded D2C channel, brand D2C channel, or online commerce directly on the social media platforms, right? I mean, we've seen Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, Line, etc., all uh, Instagram, they all have all integrated shopping functionality, right? Or it could be a more traditional retargeting or email marketing as well. But we have to capture the consumer when they're most uh, interested. And then, honestly, it should not take more than a minute to go through checkout because, again, that is when the interest 
just has peaked when the consumer is willing to buy. And it really requires a seamless integration of the checkout into whatever channel a consumer is using at that time. And of course, it also requires a seamless payment integration, for example, mobile, Apple Pay, Google Pay, or whatever, fast side speed and all of that. But that's really at the core of the concept, right? Shopping not being a distinct activity anymore, but it's you know, rather integrated so seamlessly um, that it is really akin maybe to walking into a store, grabbing products, putting it into your car uh, cart, and it's already paid for, right? You don't have to line up at a point of sales. You yeah. don't have to spend, yeah. you know, any undue time, basically. Yeah, I've noticed that as well. Even just using an Amazon app, no longer do I need a shopping cart. No longer do I need mm. to add to cart. I can, It's just a, there's add to cart, but then right underneath it is buy now. And with one swipe mm. and maybe some facial recognition, it's purchased and on its way. So right. fast. So fast. Yeah, so fast. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.